Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The U.S. incarcerates over 2.2 million people. That makes prisons the site of the nation's largest book ban. The book bans are worsening. Prisons are choosing to block what they consider contraband, and books are the victims, with book bans in various states and the federal prison system. The list of books banned in Texas, for instance, numbers more than 10,000. The list in Florida numbers over 20,000. Prisons are not only banning thousands of specific books from getting into prisoners' hands, but even ceasing book deliveries completely. Texas bans books by Alice Walker and Henry Louis Gates Jr., among others, while permitting prisoners to read books by Adolf Hitler and David Duke. The ban covers books on civil rights and prison life. For example, Michelle Alexander's critically acclaimed book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, is being targeted for banning by many prisons. This week, we finish our conversation with Anastasia Schmid. This time, she talks about labels and the media's role in the stigmatization of incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people. Schmid also talks to us about the Indiana Women's Prison History Project and other ways of presenting her historical research, especially outside of the academic setting, such as the play The Duchess of Stringtown that she wrote with Michelle Jones while in the Indiana Women's Prison. She ends by sharing her ideas about what abolitionist horizons look like to her and how she envisions a continued fight against the carceral system. Here she is. It's about giving voice to those women. It's about validating lived experience, past and present. It's about showing the complexity of humanity. We are all so much more than just a label or a situation or an event or a circumstance. You know, but the the problem is that when you put these kind of labels on a human being, it erases everything they were before and everything they are after and anything they are beyond the label itself. Nobody is any one thing. This is part of what the work I'm doing and, you know, my fabulous colleague Michelle is doing and so many of the women who are still part of this project on the inside, Natalie, Lara, Rayanne, Kim, Molly. Molly's out now, but, you know, I can go on and on. There are several others who have been a part of this process. Again, so, you know, when you ask who am I, or I ask, who are you? We're never going to get to an understanding of that through labels. It's, it's limiting. It's isolating. It creates barriers and walls and separation. So how do we move beyond that? What kind of language do we use to move beyond it? You know, I, I think the thing that I've realized, too, especially in the years of the History Project, and doing this work and doing the research and now having uh, countless interviews with people about the work uh, and reporters and journalists, God love you people. How many of them in talking to me about my work in the History Project or talking to Michelle, we would have these fabulous conversations and interviews and 
it, we would come to the wrap up and they'd be like, well, you know, we're going to have to tag the criminality and the crime onto your name or your picture with the story. For what? What relevancy does that have to the work that I'm doing at this point? And I was told over and over and over again, we have an ethical obligation to report all the facts. So I'd like to emphasize a few of those words. First of all, nobody on the entire planet throughout the history of humanity has ever recorded all the facts. If we had recorded all the facts, Michelle and I would not be rewriting history right now if all the facts had been recorded. Ethical obligation to who? So you claim to me that you had an ethical obligation to your readers, but in the same breath, without you explicitly stating it, what you're telling me is that you have no ethical obligation at all whatsoever to me, your interviewee. Thirdly, on that note, it is 2019. We have this lovely uh, invention called the internet now. Any human being out in the free world at any given point in time can Google pretty much anything and get whatever kind of information they want. True, false, absurd, it doesn't matter. You can Google anything and get whatever information you want to. So if some reader or listener is that morbidly curious about things above and beyond the scope of an interview or an article, are they incapable of doing some research themselves? That's essentially what these journalists are telling me. If they could not possibly read or hear anything about me without knowing the dark past and all this other stuff, are they incapable of figuring that out for themselves? It's insulting to think these things, not just for me, but for any human being. So while I've been told, you know, we must tag your criminality because we must record all the facts because we have an ethical obligation, to people. What you didn't want to tag was all the other labels that also apply to me. I am a mother. I am a scholar. I am a graduate student. I am an artist. I am an activist. I am a daughter, an aunt, a cousin, a lover, a best friend. I'm a million other things that you never seem to think you had an ethical obligation to report, that you never seemed to think would include, quote unquote, all the facts. So why is it that we only consider all the facts the negative things of a human being? And why do we only have ethical obligations to certain demographics of people and not others? Up next, Anastasia talks about the Indiana Women's History Project. You know, I think one of the things that we can learn on a whole through the History Project is understanding that knowledge and validity and importance comes from all places, all people, in all circumstances. There is no such thing as only certain people 
being knowledgeable or credible or, you know, any one of those things. All people have all those things. But, you know, we have to question who do we consider to be the knower? Who do we consider to be credible? And who don't we? Because, you know, this is where silencing really comes in. Which person will we automatically not listen to or discredit and for what reason and why? You know, so I think um, through this project, we have proven to ourselves, to the people that we worked with, to the institutions that we were under, and now to the world at large, that we are every bit as knowledgeable as anybody else, sometimes even more so. We are every bit as credible as anybody else, sometimes more so. You know, we are all those things. But for centuries now, we have disregarded and discredited and silenced and made false assumptions and stereotypes about people who are imprisoned that we've missed the gift because of the package all day long. I think that's one of the greatest lessons I've come to teach other people is don't miss the gift because of the package. You have to be able to see beyond the label or the circumstance or the stereotype or whatever else it is. We have to look beyond that to see what's there for real, the reality of the situation. You know, there's this pretense that all people in prison are ignorant. All people in prison are bad people. All people in prison deserve to be there. All people in prison are guilty. All people in prison are criminals. All people in prison are offenders. There's that damn word again. I find the word itself offensive. If I'm not directly offending you in this direct moment, please do not refer to me as an offender. It's offensive. Would you want somebody calling you for the rest of eternity offender? Think about that word. Any of those words. What if we could take every human being and put out for all the world to see the ugliest thing we could possibly think of or find? And, and let's get here. Real or imagined. Doesn't have to be real can be a completely made-up story, doesn't have to be real, but slap that label on you and that is all you are ever considered for the rest of your life. We will never see you as anything beyond that. And we will frame anything that has to do with you through that. Pretty limiting, pretty isolating, pretty silencing, pretty damaging. This is what we're doing to people. So, you know, the importance of the History Project Number one is the validation of human beings across the board. Uh, number two, it's realizing that in this very subjective truths, there are multiple truths. Whose truth? Whose experience? Whose story? You know, we, we have to look at everything's um, from a complex level of understanding, from multiple sides, multiple views. And then have the ability for ourselves to choose. Okay, now that I've seen more of a complete picture, now which parts will I accept as truth? And which parts will I question? And which parts will I disregard altogether? We should have a choice. 
we should be able to see a larger narrative than the one we've been given. We deserve the right to choice. We deserve the right to know the complexities of humanity across the board. You know, working with women all these years, when I ask women particularly, and people in general, but especially women, tell me about yourself. I get a long litany of roles. Or how a woman describes herself in relation to another person. I get very few things or nothing at all to the person herself. Okay, great, you have three kids. Who are you beyond the mother of those three children? Great, you're a wife. Who are you beyond being a wife? Great, you're a factory worker, you're a nurse, uh, you're a custodial janitor, you're a waitress, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor. Great, what else? Who else are you? or more than the labels. And that's the point. History is chronically repeating itself because we don't know the big picture of history. We only know little pieces and parts of it. And we're only hearing it through very specific people's lens. We're not hearing history or the histories being told by the people that actually experienced and lived those histories. We're hearing it through somebody else. We're not hearing it through lived experience. We're hearing it through the outsider who's telling you the story they want you to know. We have to start telling our own histories. We have to start telling our own stories. And so, you know, I like to call it the counter-narrative because there's the dominant narrative. There's what they're telling you, and let's get here. It's what you've been told all along. That's why we think and believe the way we do. And then there's another story. There's the story of the person who's actually living it. And we need to start paying attention to those stories. We need to start asking one another these stories. We need to start asking people, you tell me your story. Let me hear it from you, you who have lived it, you who have experienced it, you who know firsthand. Let us hear your story. And for people like myself, um, it isn't just me telling my story now. It is me attempting to tell the stories of those in the past that for all the things we've already talked about, were not able to do so themselves. It's to bring that validation to that life, to that humanity, to that experience. Horrible and beautiful and complex and sticky and multifaceted. You know, all of a sudden we found ourselves uncovering things nobody, ourselves included, thought we were going to uncover. Uh, completely uncharted territory, unexpected, unplanned. Maybe that was the beauty of it. And realizing very early on that, you know, we had hit a gold mine. We had found things that nobody else knew. And wow, how exciting. I mean, isn't that... 
what the historian attempts to do. You know, not just chronicle and record what has happened and what the past looks like, but hopefully find the piece of the past that nobody knew about, the uncharted territory. I mean, I've said repeatedly I'm not a historian, kept trying to tell people I wasn't trying to be a historian. Somehow along the lines, I actually became a historian, but um, I don't consider myself a traditional historian. And why? Because I'm interested in the uncharted territory. I'm interested in uncovering the silenced voice, and I'm interested in telling the story that wasn't told. Um, and interested in that process of the voiceless and the untold, finding that thread of common humanity and contemporary experience. How does it look the same? How are we repeating that history? And I guess the bigger question beyond that is in the presentation of this, hopefully invoking critical thinking in other people. Wow, how and why did these things happen? Are they still happening? And the biggest question yet, what can we do to stop it from happening again? To do something different, to make a different choice, a better choice, a more conscious, informed, aware, educated choice. You know, I keep telling people, sure, academic conferences have been amazing. Doing the scholarly work is fulfilling and exciting and wonderful, but I am not just trying to talk about these things and present these things and tell these things to the ivory tower, most of which already knows. Good for you guys. I'm, I'm a part of you guys now, um, not discrediting or negating any of you and the work that you're doing and the importance of it. But damn it, we gotta expand beyond that. We, we've got to expand this dialogue and these stories and this critical thinking to everyday people, everyday people who are so intimately affected by these things and they don't even know it. They don't even know how and why they're so intimately affected by these things that have been going on for centuries now. It's a part of their everyday life and they don't know. So how do we bring these conversations into everyday life with everyday people in everyday circumstances to make people's lives better, to make our society a little better, to um, do things completely different than the way we've been doing them, to transform and transcend beyond uh, these horrors that have happened. You know, yes, horrible things have happened to me, horrible things have happened because of me, but it's so much more than that. I'm more than that, the situation's more than that, life is more than that, and we can indeed overcome all of that. It's more. What do we do with it? You know, how do you turn your lemons into lemonade? That's, this is, this is it right here. How do I take these lemons and turn them into lemonade? Uh, we are in the process of writing and soon to publish the book on uh, the counter-narrative history that Michelle and I and so many other women have uncovered now. Uh, we're scheduled to publish through the new press, 
hopefully within the upcoming years. And Michelle and I are continuing to write and rework and reproduce the play we've written, the uh, fictionalized version of this history we've uncovered, The Duchess of Strangtown. We're working to reproduce that. And, you know, I think the book project, we're trying to do something a little different. Just like I said, there's the side of us that are scholars in higher academia, and absolutely we need to give that knowledge back into that pool. So half of the book is about doing just that. The other half of the book is about telling the story in everyday language. So everyday people can pick it up and read a history they wouldn't have known otherwise in plain English and regular language to draw their own conclusions from. Likewise, the play is about, number one, putting flesh and bone back to these people, many of which completely lost their voice in history. Uh, I've chosen the medium of live theater for that very reason. Live, living, in the flesh, a, a physical experience to bring history back to life, back to the flesh, to give that voice to the people that never had it. And because it's entertaining, isn't it? How do I tell you history how do I give you knowledge in a way that's actually enjoyable? I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I don't particularly enjoy reading history books. This is why I've always said I'm not a historian. I'm not trying to be one. That's dry and boring and not exciting to me. So how do I give you these things in a way that's enjoyable? That makes you go, wow, not only was I entertained, but now I've been informed and beyond that, it's causing me to feel and think. That's the purpose. To me, that's what activism artistry really is. I want to activate you to feel and to think, experiencing the work. And so that's where we're at with that. So when we talk about the movement and what do I hope and what are my fears for it, what I hope is just that. I hope to activate you into thought and feeling. And hopefully that thought and feeling causes you to move in ways that transform and heal and change, but in a better way. And there's the fear. The fear is that what I have seen in these movements across time and especially in contemporary time, and involving this work of abolition against mass incarceration, is so much of it is based on, founded upon, and once again sustained through violence and harm. And that is a devastation to me. We will never abolish anything through violence and harm, ever. Ever. But that's been our only means. And sadly, that's why these institutions have not been abolished. They've just changed face. Slavery never ended, people. Still happening, alive and well, right this moment, still going on. Inequality of women 
hasn't been abolished, still happening, alive and well right this moment. We've changed the face of the institutions. We've changed what we call them. But at the core, at the foundation, they are exactly the same. We have not ended or abolished any of it. So for me, the hope for the movement and the message I have to bring to people who are attempting to abolish these things is that if there is any hope to truly abolish anything, then we can only do it through love and forgiveness and compassion and peace and mutual work with one another in solidarity on where we are similar and what we strive to achieve and want that is the same, that is about things of goodness, of growth, and change, and transformation, and healing, not about tearing down. What you resist persists. Some wise person said that, and it's real true. How do we embrace what we have? See it for what it is, and move to go beyond it then. We can't keep fighting against we got to start figuring out how to join, how to work with, to move beyond. We've got to find that common humanity. We have to realize that lines of separation are exactly that. It keeps us divided. It keeps us fighting against one another. The carceral system is designed to keep officer and incarcerated person at odds against each other always and more so against each other on both sides as long as that constant struggle and constant fight is always happening we're doing nothing but solidifying the very system we're saying we want to abolish it isn't working that doesn't work as long as we're fighting amongst each other on the inside and we're fighting against the staff, guess what you did? You solidified the people in power holding the whole animal in place to begin with. Nobody's questioning the system itself that way. Nobody's questioning why this isn't a solution, but only a bigger part of the problem. If we're going to fix the problem, then we have to look at the actual problem. And we got to stop fighting ourselves and each other in order to do it. I'm inspired. I'm excited. I'm ready to expand the work. I'm thrilled to death to meet so many people who have been important to me and supportive of me through these years and through this process. God, the beauty and the blessing to sit here face to face with you today, to really share life and experience and knowledge and hopes and dreams and strengths. My hope through sharing the stories and telling the stories, my own and other people's, is, um, like I said, first and foremost, let's bring a little awareness and a little education to some things. But I want to uh, invoke that thought and feeling. I want to inspire. I want to connect. And that's the key. You know, how do we connect? 
to each other, to the world at large, in good ways instead of bad ways? How do we stop the violence? How do we stop harming one another? Stop harming ourselves, that's a big one. You know, we gotta stop hurting ourselves before we can stop hurting each other. We gotta learn to love ourselves exactly as we are, here, now, in this moment, all the imperfections, all the negative crap or, you know, the bad pieces. We gotta love all of that and know that we're more than that. We're more than that. We have more to offer than that. You gotta love all the pieces and parts. You gotta acknowledge all the pieces and parts. You have to not be afraid to express all of that. Yeah, I'm uh, perfectly imperfect, man. I'm uh, flawed. I'm human. And so are you. Special thanks for this episode goes to Olivia and Anastasia. You can find a link to Anastasia's work at the Real Cost of Prisons Project at therealcostofprisons.org. This has been KiteLine. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.